I'm not sponsored by Gold Peak Tea or anything. I just like it. This morning, I really feel like the Lord put on my heart to talk about, you know, as we're going, you know, we're in the Christmas season. Um, I'm 44 years old. I've been through a lot of church Christmas seasons. (laughs) Have you been through a lot of those? I've heard this story a lot of ways. Um, 90% of the time, it's almost identical, and sometimes there's something new in there, and and, you know, it's just, it's, it's like, let's get back to the heart of Christmas, you know. Um, and sometimes I think that we miss the depth of Christmas and what it means and, and God's purpose. And speaking of God's purpose, who's been to Lewis Barbecue? Yeah. Anybody? <laughs> it's heavenly food. It is God's purpose for you to, to have the, uh, the fatty side brisket at Lewis Barbecue. But God spoke to me about purpose um, at Lewis Barbecue a few days ago. I have a really good friend named Matthew. Um, he is a very good, very loyal friend. And um, he's, he should be Dutch. He's not. Um, because Dutch people on their birthday, they throw their own parties. I know that. I'm a Vanderplug, you know. Dutch people throw their own parties and invite their friends uh, to the parties. And Matthew does that. So he planned a birthday party at Lewis Barbecue, and on 85, on my way to Lewis Barbecue, there were several times I thought to myself, man, there's good barbecue in Spartanburg, you know? <laughs> it's like a 55-minute drive uh, to get some barbecue, you know? And um, I was joking with my wife. I was like, I think if this was the best barbecue in the world, I would have still rather had it in Spartanburg, not on I-85 on a Friday night. But... Um, After I had the barbecue, I was glad I did. Um, But, you know, went to Matthew's party. There was a bunch of people there, a bunch of people that I knew, you know, um, mostly everybody there that I knew. And and we're getting, like, towards the end of it. We've eaten and everything. And some, um, a couple people are like, let's get an old Merge pick. Um, And uh, Merge is a college ministry I used to lead probably four or five years ago. I'm not sure. I think about five years ago. And, um. You know, so I'm, I'm surprised by that. You know, we've taken birthday pictures. Let's take a merge pick, and I'm sitting there like a grandpa, and there's all these people behind me. And I, I just had this moment of like, I just, you know, I don't really ever, I don't think much about those years of my life. And I felt like that teacher who's like, you know, you're seeing your kids growing up. And, um, you know, it was just like, man, God did some things, you know, in that time in my in my life, and, and you know, Corey and I have said we're going through a really difficult season right now, you know, and and so I think all of us have times where we see like God's purpose, and we're like, you know, we see we see the hand of God, but we all go through seasons as well where we don't see God's purpose, and we and we don't understand what He's doing. I mean, even as I say that now, I know many of you are thinking of, of, of things going on in your life or things that have happened to you in your life, and you're thinking to yourself, where was God in that? Right? If God's a God of purpose, uh, sometimes it's hard to discern um, what he's doing, which brings us to the Christmas story, which I think is a very complex story, but maybe the best in all of Scripture of seeing God's plan unravel in an unexpected way. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we'll just start at verse 1. Won't skip any. 
So I'm going to walk through this passage and, and just maybe point out some things that will help us interpret it. And at the time, just sort of develop this, um, this idea of purpose. Luke 2, verse 1 says this. In those days, um, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So how these census, censuses worked is it was based upon where you had land. Um, so Joseph, no, you know, was not living in Bethlehem. But as we've talked about, I think when we talked, to, when I preached on Ruth, we talked about how in Israel you had family land. Um, that land was passed down from generation to generation. And he must have had land in Bethlehem uh, that he wasn't living on, uh, but belonged to his family. Um, Luke gives us, you know, this is an interesting thing too. Luke gives us a lot of information here. <laughs> you know, in those days, there's a census by uh, Caesar Augustus and it was Quirinius's um, first year. He gives us all this information. And it's important that you know the reason that Luke does that is because Luke wants you and me to know that this happened. It happened. You know, so many times, I used to do a lot of apologetics talks and stuff. That's just defending the faith. But people will say, well, this story in the Bible was a myth, or the Bible is a myth. Or, you know, the Bible doesn't, the New Testament doesn't just have parables in it. It's all parables, you know. And, and this story is a parable, you know. There's, there's similarities to the birth of Jesus, to other deities and other cultures at other times. Um, they're rough differences, but they're similar in some ways. Um, but Luke wants to make sure that we know this is not a myth. This is not a story. This is not a parable. He's rooting it in a real time period and using real names. And here's an absolute fact. Myths, myths, historic myths never use real names. They never talk about real people, and they never name real places. They just don't. It's not the point. But Luke, he's a doctor. He's a smart fella. He wants us to know in an age of myths that he's not about to tell us one. Right? <clears throat> Interesting fact. Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, where David was from, because he belonged to the house in the line of David, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. So this would have been like a 90-mile journey um, for Joseph. That's going to take about a week, you know, walking next to a camel um, and about three hours in a Honda Civic, okay, just to give you kind of uh, and two hours in a Honda Civic with me, um, how far of a journey this was. They were journeying roughly a week um, to get where they were going to this little town in Bethlehem that is a little bit like Radiator Springs from the movie Cars. Um, it's not on a major thoroughfare. It's off to the side. And probably the entire population of this town is, is, is around 300 people, um, possibly as high as 1,000. Okay, so this is like not Woodruff. This is smaller, you know. This is a very small town. Bethlehem was. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. It's important that you know that marriage in this time period is not the same as the way that we think about it now. They weren't like two, like an engaged couple with a pregnant uh, woman necessarily. This idea that they were pledged to be married could only mean that they had not consummated their marriage. You know, when you get when you're Jewish and you get married, you know, you you go into a uh, traditionally you go into a tent with your spouse and you do the wild thing, and that is when everyone cheers. How awkward is this, right? And that's when you're married. 
like when you do it. And they are not doing that. You know, God has commanded them not to do that, but also, I mean, how would, what would you do, you know, if your wife was pregnant by the Holy Spirit? I think I'd just kind of stay back um, <clears throat> a little bit, kind of let that, that season pass and then and do my part after that, you know. But that could be the only thing this means, you know. It's not like they've got this, their, this secret thing going on, you know. They just, maybe it's telling us, hey, guys, they, they haven't consummated their marriage. This is a virgin birth. This child is God's child, right? <clears throat> While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. How, how great is that? How would you just love to be traveling for a week and, and it's time to give birth? Good Lord. Um, Corey and I were walking when Silas was, uh, when she got the urge um, <laughs> and the contractions. You know, we were walking. That was hard enough getting to the car, but not for a week. You know, we were just down the road. So anyway, um, <laughs> and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger. This wasn't a little suit. Um, these wrappings, you know, you might read that and think, why don't they just have one? You know, now we just wrap babies like a baked potato. What does this mean? Like swaddling clothes, you know, or wrappings because it's plural. In this time period, they thought that you had to, to, to wrap a child with bands of cloth in order to kind of hold their fragile bodies together. Um, so when a baby was an infant, they didn't just wrap it like a potato. They, they wrapped each leg and arm to make sure it grew straight. And they wrapped around the inside to make sure everything was held together tight. And then they wrapped around the outside of it like a potato. But there's a whole lot of wrapping going on because they believed that that's how a child would have straight limbs and that the body would be healthy, would have these cloths on them to kind of hold everything in, you know. And I get it. Babies look fat like they're about to blow you know, and uh, we know they don't, but they weren't sure uh, back then. And they placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So here's what this looks like. In the ancient world, um, ancient houses were, it was one of two ways this could look. Ancient Jewish houses, what they looked like is they were probably the, the, the size of that wall to maybe about where I'm standing right now. And then there would be a big divide in the middle and on this side would be animals, and on this side would be people. You did all of your cooking, all of your sleeping, all of the other stuff you did in this small bedroom space right here, and then you went up on the roof, and you had some space there, and you could bathe there. If anybody remembers the story of David and Bathsheba, that's what was going on, because everyone bathed on the roof of their house. And if you were near, is it time for me to be done? <laughs> and if they were, if, if, if you were near and you were able, oftentimes they used caves, you know, small to large caves. If there was a cave nearby, that's where you put your animals, and that just gave you more room in the house, right? They didn't have, like, the bedroom next to yours. Um, they were in a cave. Um, the earliest written record we have of where Jesus was born is roughly 100 years after his birth. Okay, that's not too bad. And, you know, think about 100 years ago. We, we figure it's pretty accurate, the things we read about stuff that happened in 1920, um, probably, right? And that's how this was, and they say that Jesus was born in a cave. It was a situation where it was a guest house, and they had a cave, and mangers uh, were often just hewn out stone in the cave. You know, they just went in there, and they carved out, um, you know, a little bucket space in the stone, and that's where they would put food or water for the animals um, that were staying there. 
And so we can assume, you know, Jesus is in this cave. We can assume if all of the beds are full, that the, the, that the, um, the stables are full, right? So this stable doesn't just have the owner's animals in it. It has a lot of animals in it. You know, everybody's in town, this little town of Bethlehem, everybody who grew up there is back, and they're all riding donkeys, and they're all, you know, a bunch of them are in this particular cave, I'm sure. Um, and this is where Jesus was born. It must have been kind of hard on Jesus in later years if you ever left the door open going into the house. You know, people were like, you were raised in a barn, um, kind of, you know. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. We know that this was a warm time. It's not December 25th. That's why these sheep are out in a pasture and not um, inside of a stable. And verse 9, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Okay, you would be too, right? I don't know what these angels look like. We assume they were pretty. But listen, read the book of Revelation and Daniel. They look weird. Very weird, some of these angels, you know. They've got like eyes all around their body and like... You know, we don't know what this looked like, except there was a whole bunch of them that showed up while these shepherds were just out in the field. Um, shepherds in this time period were looked down upon, okay? Being a shepherd was like a low, you know, kind of rough, or, you know, a rough around the edges, uh, an almost dangerous kind of thing, you know? It's like, you know, maybe you might go through, you probably don't, you know, um, some people go through neighborhoods and they roll up their windows and lock their doors. You know, that's what people did when they were around shepherds. Um, they could be just fine, but they may not be. You know, they could be like Johnny Depp, you know. like Johnny, Johnny Depp's famous dude, but he, he looks like he does some sketchy stuff. You know, you might picture Tanner Woody. Um, you know, this kind of, you know, tattoos and just kind of, no. Um, but it was a low position, and so you just didn't know what these guys were about. They were sort of viewed as like loiterers. I mean, like loiterers. Like, how, how hard is it to stand around and watch sheep? You know, not very hard. You know, and people just probably envisioned them thinking up dirty deeds, you know, to do while they were out there. And, um, you know, that's why David had like the lowest position in his house, you know, King David. You know, he was the shepherd. His brothers were out at battle. His brothers were doing other things. He was the shepherd. Um, out in the field, and that wasn't a great thing. You know, just, just picture somebody like CJ. You probably got a nail on the head there. So, um, Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. You know, angels always have to say that. I mean, in the scriptures, it's just like, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for which people? Interesting. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. This word Savior is like a rescuer, like somebody who has come to rescue. Picture a Navy SEAL, okay? A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Uh, Messiah means anointed one in Aramaic. It's, it's what... It's what is translated into Christ in Greek. When you say Christ the Lord, you're saying the anointed one, the Lord. Um, it's just the way Greek people talk, Greek persons talk about Jesus. Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped up like a mummy in clothes and lying in a manger. Um, so this would probably not have been a difficult task for these shepherds. Okay, A town of this many people, you know, there might have been a handful of babies. Um, and probably only one in a manger, you know? 
Um, so they probably did not have to look very hard um, to find Jesus. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. I like that too. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. You know, I think a lot of people wonder if God likes them. You know? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's like he's, he's saying to these angels, not to these angels, to these shepherds, like, listen, God is doing something right now. God is doing something tonight. And what you are about to experience has the potential to be a source of great joy for every person ever. People who are poor. People who are rich. People who have influence. People who have little or none. People who have sinned. People who have sinned a lot. The gospel is good news for all people because it's what all people need equally. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what you've done. The gospel is good news because every one of us needs it. It may surprise us that despite our rebellion against God, and I don't know about you, but I've had those times, and our often rejection of his ways and his purpose for us, he still favors us. I mean, I can go from like the attitude of God, I'll do whatever you want to just not listening to a word he says all in the same day. And back again, my loyalty is flawed. But in the midst of all of that, God still favors us. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I wonder what they actually said. I'm sure that's like an abridged uh, version, and I don't know if it was all rated G. Um, But nevertheless, they headed uh, to find Jesus. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying um, in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered these things in her heart. Man, she had a lot to think about. You know? I just can't imagine. You know, she's traveled a week. She's having a baby. She knows she has this promise. The baby has been born. You know, it's, it's God's anointed. It's Jesus. These shepherds have come because the angels told them to come. And she's just, I'm sure she's just trying to process everything that she's experiencing. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You know, I picture this, <laughs> you know, it's a cave, 
there's, I mean, I can't imagine Mary and Joseph and Jesus had much room in this cave, you know, unless it was like a ginormous cave, which there's not a lot of those, and I doubt it. It's probably packed. It probably stunk to high heaven, you know? And these shepherds show up, and this is supposed to be God's son. Now, they have no doubt because they just saw like, you know, like a whole bunch of angels doing the doo-wop, you know, <laughs> about Jesus. So they know it, and they show up, and they're the only ones at the party. That must have been weird. Like, why, you know, why me? You know, why did God show angels to me and send me here? There's nobody else here. It's just this cave. It's these animals. It's this couple. It's this baby. And this is God's son, and, and we're here. Nobody else is there. I mean, why did he choose us? They had to be thinking that. Nobody else would have chosen them to do something. Gosh, it's just, it's so contradictory to the way that people think. God likes to do that. He likes to upset the paradigm. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, ouch, his name was Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So here are some things. Here's what I'm thinking about Christmas. People talk all the time about the simplicity of the Christmas story. Getting back to baby Jesus lying in a manger. You know, we, we don't push that too hard because we do want people to buy presents and do all the other things we Americans do. You know. To get back to the heart of a simple story, a silent night, a holy night. But the truth is that Christmas, the Christmas story is a very complex and a very surprising story. It is not what they or we would ever expect to happen. I mean, Jesus' story, guys, it, it began with scandal and fear. You know, Joseph didn't know if he needed to divorce Mary. You know, there were, you know, she was, you know, people were talking about her being pregnant. You know, he, he, I don't know if he just was indecisive, hadn't pulled the ring out yet, you know. But he had to decide. And guys, people were put to death for that sort of thing. Unless the husband was like, no, 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 don't kill her. Which was Joseph's attitude. But then, guys, every man in town would have been like, what an impotent idiot. Like his wife is sleeping around on him and he's just like okay with it. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of scandal. It's like, why God? Why, uh, why would a holy God orchestrate things that way? It's a story of poverty and provision. We see not in this pericope, but in others where they go to take Jesus to the temple it says they offered two young pigeons. You know who offered two young pigeons? The people who couldn't afford a lamb. They were poor. Mary and Joseph could not even buy a lamb. They had to sacrifice pigeons. Why would a, why would a mighty God have be born into those circumstances? Scandal, fear, poverty. 
It's a story of upsetting the societal norms. I mean, in a major way. And it brought great conflict with the popular expectation. God intentionally brought Jesus into a situation where to a lot of people, he did not look like the Messiah. They were all expecting a warrior. They were sick of the Romans. They wanted someone to show up with a sword in their hand and draw blood. Not this poor kid from Bethlehem. This story, this Christmas story, the, the, the plot traverses through the, these Jesus' life and the hilltops of these incredible revelations and the valleys of human rejection leading to a cruel, violent death before the climax of a great resurrection. It's not a pretty story. It's about humanity's worst moment turned into forgiveness for the very same. And all of this was purposed and promised from the very beginning. Has anybody seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? It's a good movie. You should see it if you haven't. But it's a fascinating story about a guy who goes to prison, says he's innocent for killing uh, his wife and her lover. Um, and he spends 19 years concocting a plan to get out of prison. And he eventually escapes. Takes 19 years to get there. This long, long plan. And at the end of the movie, you're just very surprised how things turn out. You know, and sometimes God's plan is like that. You just can't see in the moment where things are going. You don't know where they're going. You wouldn't have been an outside, you wouldn't have been an Israelite in Jesus' time period and necessarily without the help of the Holy Spirit looked at his life and said, now there's a champion or that's somebody who's going to do something great for God and certainly not that's God himself. He, he just wasn't in those circumstances. God didn't come down and put himself in royal garments, did he? He put himself in a place like you and me. You know, I, I was born into better circumstances than Jesus was. But God came and identified with everyone. There's, no, there's nobody in, in such a low position that Jesus did not experience that lowness. God's word had built up that God was doing something, but it wasn't what people would expect. You know, think about it. There was the fall of man in Genesis, the beginning of humanity's story. But even that came with a promise that God would set things right again. Right? Think about the fact that there was, for centuries, there was a temple and myriads upon myriads of scapegoats and sacrificial lambs, each one of them was prophecy to show what Jesus would do. There were countless prophecies given that were fulfilled in Jesus. And all of this leads us to a greater understanding of what is meant that the gospel would offer great joy. 
peace and favor for all who could get over themselves enough to receive it. Salvation for those who would humble themselves enough to seek it. And nobody goes to hell except over Jesus' dead body. In his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus did everything for all of time to prove to every person that his love is greater. Jesus has nothing to prove. God is not defensive. His love is sure. His love is proven. And he sent his son to make a way for us in ways that nobody expected. I want to close with this story. I know I've shared it before, but honestly, as simple a story as it is, it's the best I've heard to help understand Jesus' incarnation. You know, there's a story of a farmer boy who lived on a farm and he lived in middle America, you know, probably like Indiana or Ohio, great place, lived there. And he noticed that there were some birds coming through that were migrating south, but they were late in the season to be going there. In fact, these birds could die. You know, he knew that it was snowing that night. There was a snowstorm. You know, and these birds were just sitting up in a tree uh, trying to figure out what to do. I don't know how birds think, you know. But he's a little boy, and he's like, man, those birds are not, you know, they might not make it if they just hang out in that tree, you know. And so he goes to his barn, and he puts a fire in the barn. He warms things up. It's warm, too. There's other animals in there. And he just opens up the door, and he's like, surely they'll go in there. Like, it'll get colder and colder out here, and they will just go in there because they'll realize it's warmer. But the only problem is not a single bird ever went in there. Hours went by, and they just stayed in the tree. And the boy thought to himself, if only I could become a bird then I could show them the way in. If only I could become a bird. You know, that's when Jesus came as a man, that's why he came as a man. Was so he could show us the way to life. He wasn't just going to stand there and watch us die trying to figure it out on our own without a chance of figuring it out. He sent Jesus into our circumstances, into our pain, into our hurt, into our world to show us the way to life. And that is what Christmas is celebrating. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you favor us. Thank you that you made a way. Thank you for showing us how. This Christmas, help us just to live in the light of your love and to show your love to others. We love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.